0: Hall of Fame, Village Media, and the Pro Football Hall of Fame present Football Heaven. Joe, John, my friends, we have an incredible two-part conversation here where we'll be joined by HBCU Hall of Famers Larry Little, Art Shell, Willie Lanier, Harry Carson, and of course, Black College Football Hall of Fame co-founders Doug Williams and James Shaq Harris, who John Joe has known longer than either you or I have been alive about that one. <laughs> anyway okay but before we jump into all of that and all of our conversations and we talk a little bit more about the HBCU we'll start as we always start with some of John's treasures so John what have you pulled out of the Hall of Fame's I don't know display cases basement where where were these things hiding and what do you have
1: these are actually from the archive collection here at the pro Football Hall of Fame and you see a lot of helmets here but also a playbook and uh, excited to talk a little bit about them
2: well John you know, th- you know we we like having these things on on this show some of them are a little different uh, I can see a helmet sitting there with a huge face mask I can't imagine you know you, you'll have to explain what that is to people but uh, then another one that's kind of painted looks like. So give us a little bit of background about those, what we're looking at there.
1: Uh, these are some artifacts from some of the Black College Football Hall of Famers and actually some of the Pro Football Hall of Famers That we have enshrined here in Canton, Ohio, and I'm going to start right here with this uh, this white helmet, and uh, it's it's a very interesting story. So this helmet is from Willie Lanier, one of the first black middle linebackers in professional football. Uh, Willie played most of his career, actually all of his career, with the Kansas City Chiefs, and in 1978 was traded from the Chiefs to the Baltimore Colts, and. the Colts went ahead. They they put their logo on the side of the helmet. They painted his red helmet from the Chiefs white. And before the season started, Willie decided instead of playing football for the Colts that he was going to enter retirement. And so he never wore the Colts helmet. Uh, but but we have it here preserved in Canton, Ohio, the red Kansas City Chiefs helmet painted white as as Willie. Uh, got traded to the the Baltimore Colts.
2: John, I just wanted to say, you know, that helmet also, you know, that, you know, you and I have seen it many, many times, but there's a crown going across from the front to the back there that was uh, popular with just a few players, Otis (laughs) Sistrunk, Willie Lanier, and one or two others, where they had the padding on the outside of the helmet.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, Willie's nickname was Contact, so he obviously, uh, you know, Uh, Mixed it up uh, as as a middle linebacker, and so adding a little bit more protection uh, to to the center of that helmet. You know, it's funny, I was actually looking at at a few different artifacts today, and uh, Art Shell actually had a very similar uh, padding on the uh, middle portion of, of his helmet as well, and I decided. I was kind of helmet heavy here and so I decided not to bring Art's helmet uh, on onto the show today but I do have an artifact from Art Shell, who is pro football hall of famer black college football hall of famer and uh, this is uh, Art's playbook when he was head coach of the Oakland Raiders and and Art was the first modern era African-American head coach uh, in in NFL history and so uh, you know Great, great insight uh, when you when you go through a, a, a head coach's playbook. Just uh, incredible, detail-oriented individuals.
2: Well, you know, John, you, you're talking about Art Shell and Willie Lanier, and and you know, we, we talked to Doug Williams and James Harris, uh, and it makes me think back, you know, when uh, when the Black College Football Hall of Fame, when Doug and Shaq were talking about starting it, they, you know, it was even before they did. Shaq, because we'd known each other for so many years, uh, you know, called me and said, Hey, you know, we're gonna do this black college football hall of fame. How do we start and so on? So I gave him a copy of the Pro Football Hall of Fame selection process bylaws to start with, to give him an idea of, you know, what's gonna, you know, what's gonna be involved in doing something like this. But in any case we kept, you know, talking and Gosh, I, I think I went there. I know I went to every one of the induction ceremonies uh, since the uh, Black College Hall started. But one day I got a call from Art Schell, and It was one of the real, uh, you know, uh, real moments in my life that I'll, I'll remember. And, and Art asked me, you know, he says, Willie Lanier, he, um, uh, uh, Mel Blunt, Shaq and Doug wanted to know if I would serve on their board of advisors. And, that you know, for Art Shell to be calling me who am I you know, Art Shells calling me and asking me to you know join their board of advisors it was such a great honor you know and I still serve in that, that capacity all these years but when I look at those helmets you know there's Willie Lanier's helmet there's Art Shells playbook and there's Doug's helmet next to you know the Willie or, uh, next to Art's playbook it, it just brings back those memories and how you know how honored I was when they asked me to be a part of this program and that's really why I've stuck with it all these years and we hopefully will finish by Opening the Black College Football Hall
1: of Fame here at the Pro Football Hall of Fame,
2: but I just throw that in. And I want to didn't want to mean to interrupt you, but boy, it, it hit me as you were talking.
1: No, that that that's great. And, and you mentioned uh, Doug Williams' helmet here. Uh, you know, pretty incredible story. And we, we've got a chance to to talk to Doug a little bit uh, over the years of, about the helmet, and it's it's very rare because um, you know it's got this um, extra protection on this face mask up front and you know this is from his rookie season in 1978 Uh, he broke his jaw and and we found out just recently it was uh, Fred Dreyer who who broke his jaw in three places and uh, and so as as he had it wired shut and missed some time uh, that season when he comes back they create what they they called the the shark cage face mask to try to help protect his jaw and help get him back on the field and and Doug tells a great story that he had never been more sore after uh, playing games than, than wearing this face mask because as a quarterback, you're constantly you know, scanning the football field. And every time he tried to scan to his left, it would, the face mask would hit his shoulder pad, which would move the helmet and jostle the jaw that had been you know, broken in three places. And so um, you know, they, they, they could have tweaked that a little bit better, I think, in terms of, of protecting uh, Doug uh, in, in that moment. And then yeah,
2: I, don't, I don't know john you know when you, you all the shark what was it the shark mask the a,
1: the shark cage face mask
2: <laughs> I, you know i don't know it, it might have protected him from a shark but it didn't protect him from you know hands elbows forearms uh knees hitting him in the face he's still got a broken jaw under all of that and jostling it's just like i said just just hitting his shoulder pad as he turned his head he couldn't turn it all the way because that face mask would get in the way It's amazing that he was able to even play.
1: (laughs) Well it just shows you the determination right you get you get on the football field and 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 you're trying to you know super competitive individuals trying to win football games and then last but not least we have Harry Carson's helmet here and and this was from a Monday night football display that we had celebrating the 20th anniversary of Monday night football. So this was uh, a helmet that was part of that display. Uh, Harry Carson, part of so many great uh, Monday night football games uh, there with the Giants. So just a few artifacts that we have from the collection related to these incredible individuals that we get a chance to, to talk with and uh, sh- help share their stories.
2: Well we have with us Aditi somebody who wears two Hall of Fame jackets by the way. He wears a gold jacket with the Pro Football Hall of Fame and he wears a black jacket as a member of the Black College Football Hall of Fame as a, well is a member of that organization but coming out of Bethune-Cookman and HBCU and the Black College Football Hall of Fame for those people that don't understand what that is. Black college football began in 1892 because they were black athletes weren't allowed to play at major colleges and universities. Shaq Harris and Doug Williams, two great quarterbacks coming out of grambling, felt that there was a need to preserve the history and the stories that went along with black college football from that era of 1892 right up until the 1960s before they were really being welcomed in the NFL. And Larry was one of those players in those early years that made that transition from what they used to say the small black college from the south, uh, Bethune-Cookman, uh, first with the San Diego Chargers and later with the Miami Dolphins. Welcome, Larry.
3: Thank you very much, Jim.
2: You know, I uh, just want to just say, Aditi, you know, there's so much history in black college football that people aren't familiar with, but they're familiar with the great players, and they have no idea, you know, the, the road that they channel the challenging road that they took to make it to the NFL. Can you reflect a little bit about what it was like coming out of an HBCU into the NFL?
3: Well, we never flew. <laughs> <laughs> We had to ride the bus, no matter how far we were going. We didn't have a bathroom on the bus at the time. <laughs> if we needed to use the restroom, the bus driver would pull over to the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> and we would go into the woods and do what we needed to do. <laughs> we, I mean, it was, it was you know, but we didn't think anything going. I thought that was the way it was supposed to be. Mm, sure. Of not knowing the amenity that you you'd have gotten going to a uh, to a white let's say a white school at the right, time. Right. Was
0: that even an option for you? Were no, there any big schools that looked at you?
3: No, not even the big black schools looked at me <laughs> when I came out of high school. <laughs> Grambling didn't look at me. Florida A and M, who was in Florida, did not look at me, or they didn't even say I would think I was good enough to play there. So I had to go to a school like Bethune-Cookman that had only 750 students at the time. And when I graduated in 1967, it was about 800 students at the time. Yeah.
0: So, what you said that no matter how long the trip was, you had to ride the bus. We had what to was ride the long bus. What was the longest trip you took?
3: From uh, Daytona Beach to uh, Tennessee. And even when I was coaching at Bethune Cookman, we rode the
2: bus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and Sha- Shaq Harris likes to tell the story. He says we stayed at the Bleacher Motel. And the first time he said that to me, I said, the Bleacher Motel, I never heard of that chain. And he goes, no, we got to the stadium, we slept under the bleachers. That's where we, <laughs> <laughs> we slept.
3: <laughs> Same as us, uh, we went, uh, slept in other school's gymnasium. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they came to play us at Bethune-Cookman, they slept in our gymnasium. Uh, at Florida and m we slept in Gibbs Hall in the bottom in the basement. Mm-hmm. At uh, Fort Valley State, uh, I, before he passed away, I used to tease uh, uh, Rayfield Wright, about the guy that took us into the town uh drove us to a haunted house, <laughs> <laughs> and then if we go to uh someone else somewhere else, I mean the football team came in and fed us we' <laughs> <See. laughs> going to play <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> oh.
2: yeah, and the other thing is they uh, a lot of these uh, teams found it necessary to have their marching band practice right outside the gymnasium you were trying to sleep in. Uh, true. <laughs> that, that's true. Yeah. I mean, no respect. <laughs> a little
1: gamesmanship there. When you, when
0: you think about the kinship that all the HBCU alumni have, what is that based on?
3: Oh, actually, because we all probably went through the same thing. Uh, uh, they, some schools may have had a little better than we did because we, we were a private school and wasn't supported by the state, but we were still close. We, in fact, the guys from Miami that went to Florida A&M, and I was at Bethune Cook when we worked out together during the offseason. So, you know, that was one of those things that you not think nothing of.
2: When, when you were uh, scouted by the pros, do you, do you recall uh, who came to scout? Uh, or were you, were, Let me put it this way. Were you ever named to any of Bill Nunn's uh, Black College Hall of Fame or Black no. College All-American teams? It's very
3: corey All-American now. Yeah. Uh, now I will tell you who scouted me was uh, a coach. One guy by the name of Jack Faulkner. Oh, I, don't I knew forget Jack. That. Sure. Yeah. And he told me he was with the Rams. Mm-hmm. And he and then someone else from uh, Houston Oilers told me I would be in the top ten draft picks. And uh, Dick Haley, I think Jack Haley or uh, Haley yep. with the Steelers at the time. Right. See my college coach. Played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was one of the first black to play professional football, Jack McLaren. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were friends from Pittsburgh. So he came and scouted me, and I did well. We didn't do anything but run the 40-yard dash (laughs) because we didn't have any weights to lift to prove how strong (laughs) we were. But uh, they liked my speed, and they said I would be drafted. And draft day, we had like 20-something drafts at the time. And I was the captain of the football team and the phone booth right next to my dormitory room. And I wouldn't let nobody else use the phone that they <laughs> waiting on the phone <laughs> call that never came to be drafted. Oh. So, but the next day I got the phone call from the Chargers and they said they want to sign me as a uh, free agent. And the day after that, Joe Thomas called me from the Miami Dolphins mm-hmm. and said, hey Larry, how would you like to come, come back on to play? And I said, uh, Joe, I would love to, but I, I just signed with San Diego yesterday. And he said, uh, I said, well, how much are you going to give me, Joe? He said, we're going to give you $500. I said, well, San Diego beat you out anyway. They signed me for $750. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my! Were yeah. you ready? Oh, I was mentally,
2: yes.
0: No, but when you got to the NFL, you didn't have weights. You didn't have the nice, fancy college background did you feel like you fit right away or was it a wake-up call
3: well i went to the, i started off in the afl right and uh, at that time definitely were getting a lot of players from hbcus to help the league grow and i was part of that growth that they that they had and i got into the afl before the league merged
2: yeah. that was a critical point in the afl's history they were the you know, they were the upstart league, and they there was a gentleman's agreement between the two leagues. They wouldn't pick off each other's veteran players. Right. But the draft was wide open, and a lot of, you know, of the Kansas City Chiefs primarily were really recruiting from the HBCUs. Lloyd Wells also. He was,
3: recruited me also. Yeah, when I, I forgot about Lloyd yeah, when he was the Chiefs. Yeah. But one of my teammates, Elijah Gibson, who was an outstanding running back, Kansas City drafted him in the fourth round mm-hmm. the year before me, yeah. and Lord, see, I'll be back for you, big fella, next year, <laughs> and he never came back for yeah. I me. Mean.
2: Yeah. Well, they, I mean, they signed you know Buck Buchanan, yeah. and Willie Lanier, and yeah. you know great players all. But the AFL was the the opportunity for HBCUs to break that barrier, no doubt. And then, yes. then all of a sudden, other teams like the Pittsburgh Steelers and the NFL started saying, well, "What is all this?" And that's when Bill Nunn got involved, right. and uh, things changed dramatically.
3: Shoot sure it for the better.
2: For the better, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but that's that's really why there is a Black College Football Hall of Fame now is right. to preserve these stories because most people, you know, things happen and change. And now we, we look at the NFL, we don't see you know there was a time from 1933 to 1946 there were no black faces in the NFL, and now it's just an accepted fact that you know you have to remind people what that long road to equality was.
3: Joe, you know what I used to do when I when we got ready to play a game, we had to program, mm-hmm. the program. That I was sitting in my locker going through the program and looking to see and count how many guys on that team that we were going to play yeah. went to an HBCU. Yeah. That's how much pride that meant to sure. me to see another guy yeah. from the HBCU playing the game. Yeah.
0: You think of the rich history of HBCUs. Does it disappoint you that now largely the best athletes choose the bigger conference schools?
3: it It doesn't bother me, it concerns me uh that they uh because the especially that new agreement that they have now where the kids can make the money coming out uh you wonder how far it's going to go but there there's still some guys now uh they still want to go to have that h b c u experience mm-hmm.
1: well and you see a lot of the co- you know Dion Sanders now taking a head coaching position and uh uh, is it Eddie George yeah. that's, that's taken a, a position? You know, so uh, you know, in that relationship with the National Football League now, I mean, it, it's really growing, and so I, I have a feeling that you're going to start seeing more. And, and how do you feel about that? Seeing more players choosing to have that experience? Well, first of all, let me say this:
3: Dion wasn't the first Hall of Famer mm-hmm. to coach at an HBCU. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that has not been noted. Yeah that uh, I was the first Hall of Famer Absolutely. to coach at the HBCU. But I think he's doing an outstanding job uh, with his persona and, and, and different things, like, well, he, with being Dion, I guess. Sure. And he's getting a lot of guys, uh, getting people to take better looks at the Also, even the young young men are now looking more for so the HBCU than uh, they, they did before.
0: Let's close on that one. Why was it so important to you to go back and coach at an HBCU?
3: Well, I went back to my alma mater. And uh, the athletic director, who was my defensive line coach in college, there were some things going on at Bethune that they didn't like what was happening. And he called me and said, Larry, we need you to come up here and coach. I said, well, coach, I, uh, I never coached before. And then he said, well, we, we need you we, you need to come save the program. And this is why I took that job. I just retired and I was working the school system in Miami, being an athletic director. And I I wasn't too keen on going up there, but I went and he talked me into going and ended up winning the first two uh, MIAC championships at Bethune Cook when I was coaching there.
0: Take that, Dion. (laughs) 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 Joe, as we continue to talk about the importance of the HBCU experience and Just get a window into that time. We're joined by the legendary Art Shell and of course by the equally legendary Willie Lanier, who can say Kinkabwala. Will you do it for us? (laughs) Kinkabwala. There you go, right? It's that that HBCU education. Yes, it is.
4: (laughs) That's a good point.
0: Okay, so tell us, what was the better school? Maryland State or Morgan State?
4: I have to let Art answer that first. They're both very good schools.
5: Good did schools that gave us opportunities to go there did so you, wonderful diplomacy
4: <laughs> <laughs> So former head coach right isn't that yeah, part yeah. of the game
0: art did you have other options was there a reason that you chose that school
5: uh, I chose that school because the coach came to my came to my home after I said I wasn't going to his to his school and um, he came pick me up and um, I told my brother this guy's coming. Tell him you don't know where I am. I was hiding down the street. My brother came and knocked on the door. And said, Coach, you want to see you. I said, I thought I told you to tell the guy. I wasn't going. So I went back, talked to the coach. And the coach, uh, um, Roosevelt Gillum, good guy, uh, I said, well, I can't go anywhere until my father comes home. He was at work. And so he waited. He said, well, we'll wait. And all he had to do was say one thing. He told my dad, said, um, like Mr. Shell, I promise you one thing: if he goes to class, I will assure you that he will graduate in four years from Maryland State College. My daddy sat down, and looked at him. He thought for about two minutes, didn't say a word. He said, "Okay, you got him," just like that. Hmm. Next thing I know, I was in a station wagon going to Maryland <laughs> State. <laughs>
0: At the, at the time, were there other options? Were there?
5: I, c- I wanted to go to Grambling. That's why I told my brother tell him I wasn't going to his school. I saw Eddie Robinson and Eddie Robinson offered me a scholarship, um, and uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, it was the first year that blacks were involved in an All Star game. Every year, you had the white schools playing an All Star college high school football All Star game, but nothing for the blacks, and so then they uh, decided the black people decided we're going to have an all-star game basketball and football for our players and uh, that's where i met um coach uh, robinson and i met uh, coach Gillum, and some other coaches all the schools in south carolina um south carolina state allen university benedict those types of schools were offering you know scholarships so uh, Coach and coach Robinson we had a basketball game one night football the next night so I played in both in both games. I had a letter for each game. So coach Robinson saw practice, football practice and he saw the basketball game but he told me after the game he said, "Look, I want you to come to Graham." Uh, he said, "I won't be here tomorrow night because I got to go somewhere else, but I'm offering you a scholarship to come to Gramlin State University." And I said, "Wow." I couldn't believe that. Then my coach, who finally got me, he was talking about Maryland State, and then he mentioned Roger Brown. And Roger Brown was a, a student at one time at my school, graduated from there, and he was playing for the Detroit Lions, and I was in awe because I loved Roger Brown. So, but then I had a choice to make, and I ended up going where I went, and it turned out well for me.
2: Willie, you you know you had a similar at the the next level, if you will, experience of being recruited or talked to about playing pro ball.
4: The interesting thing that people didn't quite understand was that blacks in America at that point in time, most I don't think were thinking about pro football, because pro football had not been a friendly place to consider. Mm -hmm. All right, so with that. Being the case, I was a student first, but I was not recruited by Morgan State. I was a walk on. And I was a walk on that summer uh, after thinking about Virginia State near Richmond because everything was segregated. So my high school quarterback had a full scholarship to Morgan. So without my parents having any knowledge, in the first week of June, I called Earl Banks at Morgan State College and said, I want to go to your school. He said, son, I don't know anything about you. What do you need to know? He said, I need transcript and film. Fine. I go back to the school, push it out there to him. He's intrigued now because he's had this cold call. So he invites me to come up to Baltimore. I take the entrance exam, I score in the top 10% of the incoming freshman class, so he knows the brain is good. (laughs) But he then says to me, son, I don't have any money, recruiting budgets already expended. I said, I didn't come asking for money, I want to go to your school. And whatever we need to do, we will do, whatever you need to do in the future, you will do. And that's how I went to school. So with that being the beginning, I was a student. I wasn't someone that was thinking about pro football, because they didn't have anybody at the position that looked like me, right? Right. And I really didn't have the size, because God gave me a growth (coughs) spurt that summer that from the 1st of June to the 3rd week of August, God gave me 40 pounds. (laughs) So I show up at Morgan State at the same height and weight I was when I came to the pros, and all of a sudden, things change (laughs) just because. So so with that, that's the lead into answering this other part of the recruiting thing. Being a student business major, scheduled to graduate on time, I was interested in the merger activity that was going on with the NFL. So I did a paper on the monopolistic aspects of pro football because they had to have an exemption from the Sherman Antitrust Act to merge legitimately because big companies act badly when they don't have competition, all right? So that was my senior class paper, so I understood all of that. With the recruiting aspect in Kansas City, the league, the teams thought that the black schools, the black players didn't know the market for their value. So with that, Buddy Young, first black executive in the NFL, attended high school with my coach Earl Banks in Chicago. But a young pulled Lynch's contract, which he signed within a week of the draft, because he was all everything in Notre Dame, fine, and that's what he should have happened. And he signed for a very large amount of money as a bonus and a three-year contract that was 6000 dollars more than the minimum pay for anybody. And we knew that. So a scout who happened to be black came from Kansas City to see me. I wasn't expecting him to be talking about money. I thought he'd be talking about off-season programs, what to expect, da da da. But with that being the case, whatever Lynch's bonus was, he said to me a a number that was 90% less. Lynch was 48 and I was 50. And he then said a salary that was at the minimum, 14, 15, 16 for three years, And of course, I can't use the language that he used to me, but I can use the lettering (laughs) (laughs) that was used on Morgan State's campus in 1967, my introduction to the business of pro football. And what was said, if you don't take what we're offering, you can take your MFA to Canada to play football. And as I said yesterday, I attended Morgan State as I attended Maryland State. We were dignified Negroes. Mm-hmm. I'll say it like that because that's who we were. Is that correct, sir? That's correct. Okay, so, 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 so the, the essence was that was your definer and it had to be your definer because you're taking steps to move into wherever you can in American culture and business where you had been denied and that was everywhere. So therefore, you had a, a countenance that was required. So what I said to him was that first, no one speaks to me that way. And three things would happen. I wouldn't go to County to play football. You need to go back to Kansas City and tell them they sent the wrong SOB to see me. And I will sue you all. I'm a business major, King Cabala. You know, I come to play. What the heck is wrong with you? I'm a student and you think I'm gonna work for you and you can disrespect me? And I'm going to give my skill in some way to you? So I called the coach. Of the Kansas City Chiefs the next day. His name is Hank Scram. I said, let me explain something to you. I'm a graduating senior at Morgan State College. The only thing important to me is to graduate. If you think you can send someone to disrespect me, you're wrong. The draft that y'all had means nothing to me. The only thing important to me is to graduate. And I might have never come to Kansas City. I might have never play pro football. Y'all will not disrespect me. Bam. I'm 21 years of age. 1967 in America. How many
0: black players were on the Chiefs at that time?
4: There were more because of the American Football League. Buck Buchanan had been the first number one draft choice of all the teams in the league going to Kansas City. So change had started to occur at the playing level. The minds had not adjusted as to what was should be required at the negotiating level.
0: D- did Coach Stram ever respond?
4: No, because what happened is he he subsequently had to respond later. But what happened is that the scout had to do his job. So the scout calls me back, wants to take me to buy some clothes and get back in my favor because he has to do his job. All right, <laughs> so, so with that, it was just interesting to see this thing unfold. And it had some more intricacies in it. I subsequently signed and all of that but there were some lines drawn at that moment that could never leave me until I leave here because I saw you for who you were and there's nothing you can ever say in the future about who you are, right? And and unfortunately, that became a part of what I saw and others saw and the reality was that if you didn't take bold posture continuously. Not for others to see, but in the room, close the door, look the person in the eye, be confident to let them know I will walk at any time. What you have means nothing if you come to me in that way. But the unfortunate thing was, looking back at the scout, he was tasked to do what he was tasked to do. If he wanted to be paid. So, that's sort of the comments from
2: Joe. You know, you know. Well, you know, we've talked about this so many times, but it, it's so important for people to realize. You know, just going to that team was one step, but there were no black middle linebackers in pro football. That was quote the white man's thinking position. Middle <laughs> linebacker, yeah. quarterback, center. You know, just it just <laughs> didn't happen. But you didn't go there thinking. This isn't a position I'm not going to... You went there to be a middle linebacker, or you went there to play. You were made a middle linebacker, and I don't know that it occurred to you, the pioneering role that you were playing, is it was just you. You you knew what you could do. You were doing what you do best, and it wasn't... The challenge was more to be you than to be a black middle linebacker.
4: Well, yeah, the challenge was, one, to make the team next to start, next to see how you can advance the position... I had an injury in that first year. So with that injury, it allowed me to understand that you have to be playing, not injured. Hmm. So you had to make adjustments in how you played and reduce the risk of injury. So unfortunately, some coaches later on didn't understand that. But if they had the foolishness of saying somebody needs to give 100%, and then you injured four or five games at this thing called 100%, Then, based on business and Six Sigma, I'm gonna ratchet it down to 93, 94 percent. I gotta find my spot. Mm -hmm. That's legitimate. So I found the spot with God's grace and all of that. We won't go into all the details. Mm -hmm. But I then played 10 more years without missing a game. You find the moment and you understand. But the other thing was, my target became Dick Buckus, who was the perennial All-Pro middle linebacker. But I also understood that. Based on a schedule of games, I can't attempt to be at this high level of performance for every game and make it through a season if I'm trying to dislodge him. So I approached it as if though I'm a politician running for office. I look at the television schedule at the beginning of the season. I look at which games we have a national, which games we have a regional. I adjust my play to the national game. <laughs> sure, no, no, this is business, all right? I adjust my play to the national game. I take my blow on the regional. I have to be able to gain the locals anyway because they are in our market, okay? So I'm tweaking, I'm, I'm adjusting this thing. I'm not an idiot. So, so the thing that I share with that is that that was just a part of a process.
0: Had you ever had a white teammate, Art, before you got to the NFL?
5: No. No. So I'm, I saw people, white folks from a distance playing the game, but no. Uh,
0: Is that an adjustment in any way, as Willie laughs?
5: Was that an adjustment?
0: Walk into a locker room and you have white teammates now.
5: No. Oh, football players. I didn't look at them that way. They were football players.
0: Do you think they looked at you because of your educational... Lineage, you didn't go to a big SEC I'm school. I'm sure.
5: I'm sure there was some that did that. Uh, I went to a team that was that was uh, when I went to the Raiders. They were the white guys were very receptive to black players because there were a lot of black players on that foot on that football team. And of course, you can tell the ones that may not have liked the idea of you being a, a teammate of theirs, but. You mark that down on your arm, and you you move on. Mm-hmm. We'll take care of that when we get on the field and play. But um, one of the first guys that helped me was one of the tackles I was competing against. This guy's been had been an All AF, AFL um, player. He was a right tackle. Then they had to, both the tackles were white. But after practice. This guy would bring, and training camp, this guy would grab me and say, let's go do some extra work. He didn't have to do that. I'm a guy that's playing the same position he's playing. But he was thinking team first. He wasn't thinking white and black. That's the perception that I had. He reached out to me and he started a pattern for me. I did the same thing for kids. I don't care
2: whether it was black, white, or blue.
5: I did the same thing as years went by.
2: You know, you had um, you mentioned the Raiders. Mm-hmm. You had a unique owner, as Willie had in Kansas City, yes. <coughs> that was not only both those owners were AFL owners mm-hmm. and, uh, and took advantage of the of, of the AFL's interest in finding quality players from HBCUs. Mm-hmm. But Al Davis told you taught you some lessons as your career as you were thinking what was the next level that you wanted to get into, and it wasn't one that was open to black coaches, no. it just wasn't but mm-hmm. tell the story about what Al Dave's, the advice he gave you well, as time went by and I was playing,
5: and I, and I said I, I, you know, when you're young like I was coming out of college I'm thinking about, you know, I always wanted to be a coach because I like the idea of teaching mm-hmm. and so I wanted to be a coach, and I said I'll go back to coaching high school and then as I went through college I can go back probably coach in college, you know, I, I, I admired that and then as time went by and I'm working with the Raiders and I'm saying, you know, this is a level I could, you know, I think I could move into. And so John Madden, oh, who was, was a great guy, great coach to play for. Um, when he would see me working with these young players at the practice and training camp, he's down there watching and watching. And one day he stopped me, he said, come here a minute. He said, you know, if you weren't a player today now you talking about, you know, early 70s, he's saying this. If you weren't a player, I'd hire you as an assistant coach, just like that. Now the light bulb goes off into my head. So two days later, I'm walking up the, off the field after doing the same thing. Al Davis says, hey, coach. Uh-oh. The <laughs> light bulb's really got bright. And so I walk to Al. I say, you know, when I get through playing, I want to be a coach on this football team. I like mm-hmm. to coach for you. He didn't bat an eye. He said, look, you continue to do well. You're doing good, continue to do well. And when the time comes, we'll sit down and we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. Move forward. And then later on, um, I asked the question, what does it take to be a head coach in this league? (laughs) (laughs) He looked at me. He said, learn personnel, learn organization. He said, "Learn these things. And these things will help you as you move along, and to move into the life that you want to go into, which is coaching."
2: It's amazing, you know, because he was he was spot on. And Willie, really, with Lamar Lamar Hunt in Kansas mm-hmm. City, I go. I, I, it's, people don't understand Super Bowl Four, what a pivotal game that was in the history of professional football, the mm-hmm. AFL, NFL wars, this is the final game in which the two leagues are going to compete against each other. Mm-hmm. And the Kansas City Chiefs are repeating. and He's the founder, Lamar Hunt, founder of the American Football League, mm-hmm. and that team won with how many starting black players?
4: On defense, eight, five from historically black colleges. I mean, this is a... Team. Eight, 1970.
2: Wow. This was the transformation On that occurred eight, eight in pro guys. football. yeah.
0: Can I go back to that for a second? Everybody keeps talking to us. You say five from historically black colleges. Yes. Uh, Larry Little, and they told us about the bus rides. They told us about sleeping in gymnasiums, that, you know, you didn't have the fancy towels that they had in the Big Ten. What about that experience do you think really informed your success in the National Football League? Why was the experience as an HBCU player so pivotal that even though it wasn't big college football, there was so much success on the next level.
4: I think you you came to do more with opportunity. And you knew, I believe intuitively, that we were better than a whole bunch of people. <laughs> they just didn't know it. I, so all we needed was the presence within the environment and then we come to life. <clears throat> because in this way, we're not asking anybody to coach us. God already gave us our gifts. And with God giving me my gifts, there's nothing a coach can do to help me. Because what I see is in an instant, it's automatic, and it's an adjustment to whatever he does. He tells me, some of the guys in the, Hall of, in the Pro Bowl, who are Hall of Fame players, Larry Little, Art, Gene Upshaw, would tell me that they wouldn't look at me when they played against me because I would pick up anything. (laughs) Seriously, I mean anything. Is he telling the truth, Art? He's telling the truth. My teammate, Gene Upshaw,
5: great guy, God bless his soul. He said, you know what, you go to the line of scrimmage, you look left, you look right, you look up in the air, but you don't look that rascal in the eyes. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'll tell exactly what you get ready to do. You don't look at him in the eyes.
4: I, I was talking to a fellow who played with the Redskins offensive tackle who was doing a memoir, and he was telling me about the same thing, that he just couldn't figure out how to block me because I would be there not there. And I told him that was my plan because God had given me my view of how to play the game if he's bigger than I am, he wins. So I don't need to tussle him. I don't care how many muscles I have. If he's this size and I'm this size, physics, physically irrefutable. All right? So I'm not even going to engage that. If some idiot, some idiot coaches was trying to get you. Just leave me alone because you don't understand, all right? So so what would happen is that if Art were here, I used to hit a speed bag in my basement, like Ali. And I would just have to have a little hand movement to hit his elbow, or his shoulder touch, or his hip, and make his foot move a teeny. You need both feet on the ground to have power. And all of a sudden, it changes. Nobody was teaching me that. That was just paying attention to the physics and the understanding and how to do that. Now, the other thing that they knew is that I also could then come strike you in the chest. And you don't know when it's coming. <laughs> 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 I, I mean, so so it was. It, <laughs> so it was. It was a joyful embrace of a skill that we were from black colleges. That's we were to go to a major college mm-hmm. to get that. You were able to craft something into the midst of a thing that others thought they knew, but you had to know better.
0: Art, did you always feel a kinship for other? HBCU oh, graduate?
5: Always. always. It, was a, it was like a fraternity. And when you come into the league, it's a big fraternity. We're all here. We all have an opportunity to show our wares of what we can do and how we can do it and how we will compete. Just given an opportunity. That's all we asked for. We got that. But getting back to Lanier, <laughs> one more time, when Lanier was a senior, we had a young fullback, South Carolina, Roy Kirksey. Roy acquired about 250 pounds, 255. I mean, he could run, and he could roll. So we ran a play, sweep to the right. Roy went, up, went around there, got about six yards. He said, you can't stop a freight train. So we <laughs> come back later and run that same play. <laughs> he started around that edge, and out of like a bat, out of <laughs> well, he hit him on the sidelines. He says, you might can't stop that damn train. <laughs> but you sure as hell can, can derail his behind.
2: <laughs>
0: Art, as you progressed in your career, mm-hmm. and it was about knowing personnel and scouting personnel, what was the role or how would you rate HBCU players? Was there always sort of an affection for that group of guys? Did you enjoy scouting, recruiting, talking to guys from those schools, or has that changed somewhat?
5: Well, for me, it was always, we were always put up under a little shed, and we were like pushed aside as we couldn't compete. We weren't good enough. That's why when I was a young guy, I rooted for the AFL. I started seeing things happening in the AFL. Versus the NFL, I started seeing black players in positions I'd never seen before. I started seeing middle linebackers. I started seeing offensive guards and centers. You know, these guys, positions that were not supposed to be for us because they were thinking positions, you know. So, always, Super Bowl started, and I started playing Super Bowls. I was right there rooting for Kansas City. I was right there rooting for the Jets because of what the NFL represented. The AFL represented inclusion, opportunity. The NFL will give you a couple of pieces of crumb, but we won't give you a piece, of, a big piece of the pie. So I was always ruling, being a minority, I felt that we had to prove, continuously prove, that we were, hey, we belong. You don't want us, but we belong. We belong here. Just give us an opportunity. And we can show you that we can play the game just as well as anybody else, whether you're white, black, yellow, whatever color you are, we can compete.
2: That was something you carried over Will, or, uh, or as a coach. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I know that because I know your whole organization carried that philosophy, mm-hmm. just Win Baby. And just Win Baby made you go colorblind.
5: Yeah, exactly. Al, Al Davis, what, racism? That was a no-no around there. Don't even bring it up, don't even show it. He would jump on it real quick. He did not want that. He felt that everybody deserves an opportunity to be a competitor in, this, in, in, in football, period, professional football. And so therefore, um, it did not surprise me when the time. Now, when he called me at 12 midnight that night and says, I'm thinking about making you the head coach. You know, I just got in the bed watching Ted Koppel and just got, you know, in from work. And he called me and said, you know, I'm thinking about making you the head coach. And I said, what? He said, I'm thinking about making you the head coach of the team. he said, uh, get, a, get a good night's sleep, and we'll talk yeah, about it right. get a good <laughs> night's <of> sleep. <laughs> no, I'm supposed to go to sleep on that one.
0: <laughs> Who'd you call? Did you call anybody? No, 12 o'clock at
2: night.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so uh,
0: You didn't even call Willie, ask him to negotiate your deal for
5: you? No, I wouldn't think about it. There's too many things. You know what things were going in my mind? Is this happening, okay? If this is happening. I got to be prepared. I got up, got my notebook, got my pad. My wife said, What are you doing? I said, Al just talked to me. He said, He may make me the head coach tomorrow. I got to be prepared. Started working on um, practice plans, um, what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Started working on things I wanted to say to the team. Because, you know, we're struggling a little bit. I need to talk to them and get us on the same page. What route are we going to take and which road are we going to get on and we're going to drive hard to make turn this thing around and get it going. So I sit up to about 5 o'clock just going through notes, writing things down, how you practice, talking to coaches, you know, coaches I work with, what I need for them to do in order to be better, for our team to be better, you know, those types of things.
0: Before we have to let you gentlemen go, Willie, when you found out that Art was named the head coach, What was the very first thing that went through your mind?
4: I think the very first thing would have been thank God for the opportunity for other men to pay attention to the qualities of men that they had been around and to act on their initiative. Not to have a meeting with somebody else, to ask them what they thought. (laughs) Al Davis could say, I'm doing it, Mm -hmm. okay?
0: Gentlemen, we really, really appreciate the time. Will you just quickly tell us, all your years coming to Canton Art, what's one of your favorite things about this town outside of the enshrinement?
5: Outside of the enshrinement, it's a warm, welcoming town. People are very friendly. They reach out to you. What can we do to help you? You know, that type of thing. It's good, fun people. And as I said, Mary Motley, represented Canton very well when I met him because he was a very outgoing guy, very one of the nicest person I ever met in my life. Mary Marley, the representative of Kenton.
0: How classy. Fred Beletnikoff told us it was a tavern.
2: <laughs> 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 Typical. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Willie, how about you? What's one of your favorite spots or things about Canton? Well
4: it's interesting because I talked to Leonard Dawson Junior this morning. His father and his family is from Alliance, Ohio. And we had spent some time over in Alliance with his family, and that history is tied to Canton, Ohio. So because of race in America and different places where Art might have grown up, I grew up in the South. Lynn Dawson in, college, in high school in 1959 had a black center in Alliance, Ohio. What? Hello, Art. See? No, this is this, this so, so, so. The essence of all of these different things are fascinating because I reacted the same way in 1959. (laughs) But he was in Alliance of Ohio that allowed for that to happen decades before other places.
0: Got it. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, gentlemen. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It was incredible hearing those stories from Larry, Art, and Willie. And next week, we will continue our exploration into HBCU football when we are joined by Harry Carson, Doug Williams, and James Shaq Harris in football heaven.
2: Visit Canton and experience Hall of Famers' hometown favorites for yourself. Plan your trip to America's playing field. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please check out the Hall's other exciting podcasts, The mission.
0: For more Football Heaven episodes and bonus content, please visit Hall of Fame Village Media and Pro Football Hall of Fame social media.